So, Matt, uh, this is a very special episode. This is the first time we're talking about a, a trip away that we took. But first, I want to talk about not only did we learn a lot about Jesse Knight, we also learned a lot about each other. Mainly that you are on a recording of Top of the Pops in the crowd for The Offspring. Yeah, I mean, that was um, that was uh, the Top of the Pops recording for uh, The Kids Aren't Alright, I think, when that came out. And they did a... Um, they also like wheeled out some Christmas trees. I think we recorded it in the summer, and they wheeled out some Christmas trees and uh, recorded the Christmas Top of the Pops episode, showing <laughs> of Pretty Fly for a White Guy. Yeah, in like whatever year that was, nineteen ninety nine or something. I mean, nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, when I was four. <laughs> yeah, and I'm there like with with pink spiky hair, uh, rocking out at the front. Um, yeah, but you know, it, it is thing. a testament to how you've aged like a fine wine the fact that you look pretty much exactly the same even (laughs) though it's like a a two second window of your uh of your face of you rocking out like you pretty much look the same but i do want you to tell me about your what was it 34 or 36 inch uh opening jeans yeah well you know like um, as i was saying to you it's amazing that um baggy clothes are coming back in because when I first went to uni in 1998, and it, you know the reason I'm still in tons of debt now is because they gave us all a credit card with like no credit card checks, like literally on the day you started uni. Like, <laughs> who could have seen that 2008 financial crisis coming a decade later? Um, yeah. And one of the th- first things I uh, started doing is ordering ridiculous clothes from the United States, and I bought. Uh, jeans that had 32 inch leg openings not waist but i am about a 32 inch waist i thought it was a bit skinnier than even probably probably closer to a 30 inch waist back then but the the leg openings were 32 inches yeah i mean multi-use jeans anyway <laughs> you could have put them on like the proper way you could have put them on with like one of the legs sticking up you know oh, absolutely i mean you know they were like wicking up water from the floor it was just absurd really but you know mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, look at look at you're a fashion icon now. Um, I cannot say the same about uh, my youth. I dress terribly, and to some extent, still uh, kind of do. But I dress very basic. But uh, yeah, so we went to Wales yesterday for a very very special trip. What did we do? Let's let's talk about it before we get into the main topic. Yeah, well, so I got up at what half past. F- I got train at half past five. Uh, and we got to Wales about ten o'clock, and we went. Yeah, went to the National Museum of Wales. So, um, some people who know what I do may have already seen, but I did an exhibition called "British Tattoo Art Revealed" at the National Maritime Museum in Cornwall in Falmouth uh, back in 2017. There's actually again a smaller version of it still at the museum uh, in 2023. So if anyone's sort of in Cornwall, in Falmouth, you can pop in and see a sort of smaller version of the show, including some of Jesse's stuff, actually. Um, but as part of that exhibition, I uh, got in touch with a guy called Neil Hopkins Thomas, who was the great nephew of this really incredible tattoo artist um, called Jesse Knight. So she was, as we'll talk about, she was like the first kind of prominent female tattoo artist in Britain. Um, I wasn't the first person to to talk about her or, or even to get in touch with Neil. There's a little bit about Jesse and a little interview with Neil in Margot Mifflin's book, Bodies of Subversion. But 
uh, no one had really seen her collection for um, you know since she retired. She retired in the late 1960s. And I sent Neil via Facebook, tracked him down, sent him a message basically saying, hey, we're putting on this exhibition. I wonder if um, we could borrow some stuff. I hear you've got some material that belongs to your great uh, aunt. And he said that thing that, you know, historians like me, just you just long to hear, which is, yeah, I've got a few things in the loft, right? And Cash in the attic. Cash in the attic. And the, um, the few things in the loft turned into you know, between sort of 700 and 1,000 individual items of tattoo flash, tattoo photography, tattoo machines, um, incredible objects, not just from her career. Um, again, as we'll talk about, she was tattooing from the 1920s um, and really mainly from the 1940s through to her retirement in the late 60s, but also from her father's career. Her dad had been a tattooer right back to the turn of the 20th century. This incredible archive of beautiful things, all completely intact, almost like the day she had retired tattooing, she'd packed it all up and put it into plastic bags or sports holders, and it you know, ended up in the family and ended up in Neil's loft. And um, yeah, we, we sent a van down to Cornwall, and Neil was very kind and, and brave to let us take the whole collection to Cornwall and go through it. And yeah, we'll talk more about the story of how it ended up in Wales, I suppose, as we go through this conversation. But this is where it began, right? Um, uh, to start off, maybe just to kind of give a sense of, of what we're talking about here in terms of a collection. Um, there was a, some of our listeners, many of our listeners may have heard of this really interesting, important uh, British tattoo artist called Ron Ackers, who tattooed in Portsmouth um, for a long time, was really one of the people really instrumental in connecting the British and American tattoo scenes in the post-war period. He was a very close correspondent of Lyle Tuttle's. He was a correspondent of Ed Hardy's as well in the 70s. And Ron, um, before he died, uh, wrote a, a little sort of autobiography. It's very hard to get hold of. Um, but there's a little chapter in it about Jesse. And um, this is, I think, a beautiful uh, introduction to what we're going to talk about today, because he says in her, his chapter about Jesse, one of my early recollections is that when tattooing, she used to sit on a big old trunk, rather like a wooden seaman's trunk with handles either side of it. Naturally, she was always being asked what was inside the trunk, and she would reply, one day I'll show you. When the day came that she was prepared to show me what was in the trunk, I found it was full of old tattoo designs, old machines, old photographs, and other bits and bobs associated with tattooing. She reckoned to have had the trunk since she first started up in the 20s, and it had been everywhere with her. She had a large roll of canvas, which she used to put up in every shop or booth she worked in. The canvas had been painted in oils by her father with tattoo designs all over it. Needless to say, I was very taken with this and tried for many years to get hold of it, but there's no way she'd part with it. Um, and the contents of that trunk, minus that banner, um, which maybe we can talk about um, again as we go through, are now in Wales. They're now held for the nation, saved for the nation. Um, at the National Museum of Wales, and that's what we went to go and see yesterday. So, yeah, the the, the trunk itself um, no longer exists. In fact, there was, uh, I think, one of the reasons why the collection hadn't really been chased down is there were persistent rumours that the trunk had been destroyed, with the understanding, I think, on the grapevine that what was in it had also been destroyed. But actually, I don't know what quite what happened to the trunk. One of the stories I heard was that it was just simply too big to fit into <laughs> to Neil's loft. <laughs> um, but he did keep the collection uh, and the contents of that trunk safe um, from her mm -hmm. death in the 90s. She died in 1992. 
uh, right the way up until we sent him those me- I sent him those Facebook messages in 2016. Um, and yeah, t- t- this is what we went and saw yesterday. So, so Ron Ackers was desperate to get hold of this material. Um, couldn't believe it, you know, what he saw. And, and uh, she didn't show it to anyone, but now, now you and I went to see it yesterday. So yeah, I don't know. We, we, we've talked about this already on the other feed. Um, we'll be putting out some other sort of things that we filmed on site, yes, uh, recorded on site yesterday. But yeah, do you want to talk a bit about like, you know, seeing in some sense at least the contents of that trunk? Like it was mind blowing, to be honest. Like seeing the breadth of not just designs that like had been flash designs upon the wall, but like I know I've said it on those other recordings, which will be coming out soon, but seeing kind of the totality of someone's life and career captured so well in the objects that they kept. Like she, you know, took studio photography of tattoos she had done. She had tattoos of, of, or she had pictures of tattoos other people had done, pictures of herself, pictures of her friends. And it, it was just like really fascinating to see the, the life of, someone who is like very important to tattoo history that most people don't know about uh, before it's kind of released to the public and like seeing all these like little tidbits and the fact that like all of the almost everything that has two sides was drawn on both sides or <laughs> notes scribbled on it and you can see so much of her personality coming through on stuff like I saw like board like um kind of com- composite material boards where it's like there's flash on one side then there's like sketches of the flash on the other side and like she'll have like a little note down about like oh i need to change this or change that or even just like stuff that she wanted to remember throughout the day just like notes like that it's really really beautiful so yeah it's this completely overwhelming huge sprawling collection i mean the beauty of it is is as i said it really is almost as if she's just packed up um for the day it includes everything from uh, you know, a, a hand-painted flash to little bits of rag um, to unused machine, um, uh, uh, unused bits of ink, you know, bits for her machines, repair stuff for her machines, her amazing travel box, which actually we didn't see yesterday because it's still in Cornwall. Um, a huge, vast collection of stuff, and it spans in terms of time frame, uh, more or less like the careers of her dad, and her, so we have from about 1900 right the way through to the 19 late 1960s in terms of coverage and material and correspondence. Um, after the exhibition closed in Cornwall, uh, that beautiful banner which we'd had on display, which actually we now think, thanks to the work of um, the amazing uh, tattoo historian Terry Manton, is actually not by her father, but by a guy called Albert um, Colville Gordon, an American who tattooed in. Britain for a while. Uh, this beautiful banner, which is just incredible, ended up being sold uh, to a private collector. And a, a private collector who is very serious and who is looking after it very well. But um, I was really worried that the rest of the collection would would disappear, basically. It would, would get sold off like so many other tattoo history collections have been, um, piece by piece, or kept in a way that it wouldn't be that accessible or visible to people um, and historians in the future. So. Um, I got in contact with the National Museum of Wales. Uh, and again, we talk more about this in our interview that you'll be able to hear on the feed with the social history curator there, uh, Fleur Morse. I got in contact with them and said, look, 
I really think this is an important collection. Is there any way you have budget or can get hold of budget fundraise to to try and save this collection? And to cut a long story short, and we do talk a bit uh, in a bit more detail with Fleur, even as the COVID pandemic was kind of causing havoc with this stuff, we were able to convince the Arts Council and HMRC, the the British Tax um, Inspectorate, that this was a collection that was of national importance, of art historical importance to the nation. And museums like the National Museum of Wales are able to make a case to the government that they should be allowed to um, to buy things with with preferential rates. And for a, a sum which I do not know, um, I wasn't privy to the financial dealings, but the collection pretty much in its entirety was purchased for the National Museum of Wales and is now going to be, um, again, as you'll hear more about on our other episodes, conserved, looked after, digitized so it'll be visible to people on the national museum's website um, and i cannot i cannot wait for people to see these pictures as well because like this is something that i think i mentioned when we recorded yesterday that like she obviously cared about photos because the stock that everything is is all the photos are printed on is like really good like even the photos that are damaged are still like the card stock is still quite strong so you know no sticky back plastic Not on those, at least. Um, and, and you know, we hope um, that at some point in the next few years, there'll be um, uh, exhibitions and displays. There'll be opportunities for people to go and look at it as independent researchers and independent visitors to the collection. And there'll be hopefully publications and research work um, coming out of it as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, let me, with, that, with that said about the, about the collection, let me, let's just get into Jesse's life, really, because I think that, Again, is it such an amazing story? Um, if absolutely, you her, fa- absolutely fascinating woman who seems to have done everything. Fascinating woman, fascinating family. If you Google her, there's not a huge amount out there. What you might find is basically some interviews that I gave um, around the time of the uh, exhibition in Cornwall, and also then of the first acquisition, um, or occasionally little bits of writing by um, by by uh, Margot Mifflin. But so. Lots of this story is just, you know, is if you want to read more about it, watch this space. As I said, it's mentioned a bit in that Ron Ackers book that's hard to get hold of. And there's also a short version of it in a book by a guy called Jeff Jaguar, which came out in the 70s. But other than that, you know, this is really sort of straight from the horse's mouth um, information. So she was born um, in Croydon in South London in uh, 1904. And um, her dad basically lived himself a kind of incredible life um as with i mean tattoos in general it's quite difficult to pit um pin down exactly what's true and what isn't and again take anything i'm going to say today with some pinches of salt because all of it is kind of oral history and what people remember and uh you know lots of boasting and again as you'll see there's lots of weirdness going on here but basically her father (laughs) um I want to read this. This is this is actually something that Neil wrote, uh, based on some some obviously family history and based on some newspaper clippings that are in the collection. Um, so his name, Jesse's father's name was um, Leonard Collison Lempierre Knight. Uh, he went by um, Charlie Knight or, or Sailor Knight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote here directly from um, something that Neil wrote on Facebook a, f- a few years ago. So. Quote, hearing tales of his father's adventures as a captain in the 3rd Alabama Regiment of the Confederate Army in the American Civil War, 
already we're in, right? Already we're like, okay, what's, yeah. that, what's going on there? Sparked a lifelong quest for adventure and travel in young Charles Knight. His mother was a celebrated poetess of some repute, and both parents had high hopes for their son. Um, his, um, so Jesse's mum, sorry, Jesse's grandmother, uh, her name was um, uh, Elizabeth Lempierre, and um, her poems are uh, uh, sort of basically appear quite often in like English sort of sentimental magazines at the turn of the twentieth century, and right up into World, to World War One. Um, he started off, uh, uh, Leonard did, as uh, an office boy working at a, a London office in Paternoster Row. However, several weeks after starting employment, Leonard found himself in search of something more exciting. He went down for a lunch break. Uh, <laughs> he went down for a lunch break at, um, uh, uh, to the docks and was persuaded while he was there to basically jump aboard a ship at St. Catherine's Dock and uh, <laughs> ran away to sea. Right. A life more exciting indeed. A life more exciting. So um, he ran off to sea and um, ended up in the Canary Islands. He spent five years, this is about um, 1895, he spent about five years travelling in all these glamorous ports, Chile, Casablanca, Mauritius. Um, according to Neil, quote, he was shipwrecked in Casablanca, robbed in the Moroccan coast, jailed in Mauritius, went ashore in San Francisco to work in the lumber and saltpeter mines. He travelled to Mexico and used Spanish. He learned his travels to work his way in El Paso to work Ooh. as a handyman on a cattle ranch. While he was in, um, in El Paso, he learned cowboying. So he learned um, like sharpshooting, basically, and lasso work. Uh, Acquired the names Deadshot Len or Two Gun Ricks, which I love. Um, in a, again, according to Neil, in a deadly shootout with Mexican rustlers, he lost the middle finger in his right hand. Um, because he was an expert with two guns, he fired with his left hand and killed his opponent outright with one shot. <laughs> right, that's the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he returns home uh, to quite unquote settle down, marries uh, his wife, a woman called Ethel. And uh, Jesse is their first child. Um, one of the things that Charlie Knight had also learned to do while he was traveling was, was tattoo. And he began tattooing um, initially uh, with, through an acquaintance with a guy called Charlie Bell, uh, who was a tattooer out in Kent. And Charlie had basically was also managing this performing tattooed lady. I mean, I say tattooed lady, she was actually only 14 when... She was starting to get tattooed. Of course. Yeah. And she was she went by the name Princess Christina. Um, very, very mm-hmm. famous tattooed lady. You can again, people that listen can Google her. And um, yeah, built up a bit of a reputation as a tattoo artist uh, in Southampton where they were living. So the nineteen eleven census, Jessie's living with her dad um, and her siblings in Southampton. They move to Wales at some point um between nineteen eleven and 1920. In the 1921 census, um, uh, Charlie Sailor Knight is is listed as a as a as an artist actually, and Jesse is helping him out as as um, claimed on the census. Mm. Basically, she is more or less running her father's tattoo shop. Um, she's by that point 17 and a half years old. So I don't know, like. 
what you imagine, Tom, the life of a portside. Barry was a you know important kind of docks, really. What you imagine a portside tattoo shop in 1921 may have been like, particularly for an 18-year-old woman to I, be I, I running mean, the place. I, I feel like this will inform quite of uh, the peculiarities of our personality uh, later on, particularly from some of the stuff that we saw yesterday. But like, I could imagine it was just trying to corral chaos. Like, I'd imagine her father's tattooing quite a lot of sailors, quite a lot of um, people of questionable morals, people who are just uh, here for the night and have yeah. some coins in their pockets that they need to spend. Yeah, and and this area of uh, of of Barry uh, was called Thompson Street, and I've seen it described on one historical resources are kind of like you know, a red light district as lots of those port side towns were you know as you said they'd be you know shops and and saloons and outfitters and and all the things you usually have in a town but also things to cater to this um transient population like one of the reasons that jesse's sort of running the shop is that charlie you know he's got itchy feet he's traveling around he's also working in um circuses but but also shows so he would travel and perform in theaters and varieties doing a cowboy act performing as um uh as two gun ricks also roping other members of the family in that's a bad pun i didn't mean that to be but roping other (laughs) members of the family in particularly jesse's younger sister um who's called ella and jesse even for a while helps her dad out she's like the target in his shop shooting act for a while um, Ella, who we, I'd love to, I mean, I think there's probably a whole story, not for a tattoo podcast about Ella um, and her life. She was um, initially with her father and then she married a knife thrower uh, um, and they performed together. Um, his name was Hal Denver and they performed together as the sensational Denvers. Um, mm. she, she got shot. She got shot once by her dad. Sorry, she got, she got, she got, she got a knife in the thigh from her dad and she got shot by him. Um, I mean, like, could you call that an occupational hazard if you are the human target yeah. in a circus act show? Well, the, the 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 story about her getting um getting shot, which is in 1931, she basically like wants to continue the show. Like, she's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's just a flesh wound. Got to got to love a performer who's a who's got to stick with the bit. Yeah, got to stick with the bit, right? Um. Uh, just, just as again, just an illustration of this. This is from a bit later. So, this is from 1932. Uh, I sent you this earlier on. An advert um, for the most thrilling Wild West show ever staged in England. Two Gun Ricks alongside Ranger Cliff Norman and Juan Santa, um, Jokoki, G Wiz, Ella, and Mokiqua. In an amazing display of shooting, roping, knife throwing, and mulish viciousness. Um, Two Gun Ricks is a Croydon man who emigrated many years ago to the United States. After many years of adventure, he became a member of the Panhandle Co. in Texas in the Ranger Force, and he uh, came back to England to give demonstrations of his amazing skill with a gun and a rifle. Ella Mm. is a cowgirl. She's not. She's his daughter. She's also from Croydon. (laughs) And Makiqua, an Indian maid. The two are used (laughs) as human targets by Two Gun Ricks. Um, and then um, other members of the family again become part of this sort of dynasty. Um, the one of the other names that Charlie uses when he's doing more of a kind of lasso show is Rex Roper, and his son mm. also took on that name, Rex Roper. 
son-in-law um, and uh, his uh, partner was called Macy, and they went on to mm. a big career in the in in as as very very famous cowboy acts all the way through to the nineteen seventies and eighties. So mm-hmm. huge mad family, and as again as Neil told it to me once, like Jesse was the sensible one, and that's why she ended up um, running the studio. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So clearly, you know, uh, at least for a while, it, uh, Jesse's here, um, yeah, like r- basically running the tattoo studio for a bit. World War Two sort of intervenes. Jesse has a sort of abortive marriage. She marries a guy, and it doesn't really work out. One of the stories is that she ends up throwing a knife at him, and because she's trained <laughs> how to throw knives, it just wounds him and doesn't kill him. <laughs> I mean, more effective than a divorce. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, she doesn't ever have children, but she is taken under the wing of Charlie Bell. So Charlie Bell, again, her sort of father's long-term confidant, very important tattooer by this point, getting on a little bit based in Chatham, another kind of military town, uh, in Kent, uh, another naval, naval barracks basically. And yeah, f- there begins to really learn properly how to tattoo. Um, Charlie's daughter Grace is also tattooing there for a little bit as well. So, you know, I've I've said, um, uh, you know, Jessie's like the first prominent female tattoo artist in Britain, and that is true. That that said, there are lots of women. Um, it, uh, you know, right way back to the, the birth of professional tattooing, and certainly even before that, who were who were tattoo artists. We we don't know as much about them. Sometimes we know their names. Sometimes not even that. Um, uh, a woman called Annie Kitteridge, for example, was running a tattoo studio in Wandsworth in South London in 1917. Um, but Annie, like many of these other women, um, were either the partners or the wives of tattoo artists. And they were, um, you know, kind of uh, not really the sort of center stage attraction in the shop, so to speak, as, as the lead artist. Jessie, you know, although she, she, as I said, learnt from her father, she very quickly became this very, very well-respected sort of central figure of uh, a period of British tattoo history, you know, in the 1950s when tattooing, thanks to the work of particularly Les Scuse, who runs, who ran the Bristol Tattoo Club, who I'm sure we'll do an episode about at some point in future. Thanks, thanks to Les um, and her friendship with Les and the network she was able to establish through working with Charlie in Chatham, and then being in real key important towns for tattooing, Aldershot, another military town, actually where Sutherland MacDonald had begun um, his tattoo career, uh, and then in Portsmouth, where the Royal Navy base was and where Ron Ackers was based. Um, she was able to really sort of insert herself in the middle of, of, of British tattooing. And in, 19, uh, in the early 1950s, when the London Tattoo Club was formed as an offshoot of the Bristol Tattoo Club, and they were having meetings uh, and get-togethers and, and little, we'd call them today, conventions, I suppose, really. I mean, they were sort of meetings in pubs of tattooed people, really, with competitions, etc. She won, or she came runner-up in the Champion of All England tattoo competition of 1955. Um, you know, it, it was a little competition between friends, but it's really clear that although a woman, although in a very male-dominated world, and although in some ways we'll talk about, it was clearly difficult for her to be a, 
um, a woman in tattooing. She was part of the gang, really. And I mean, that, that comes across, doesn't it, Tom, from the photos we were looking at yesterday and from some of the oh, yeah, like, ephemera and very, letters? Very, very much so that, like, you know, she wasn't like this kind of isolated island in the industry because she was a woman that, like, they were communicating. Everyone kind of knew each other that there was a kind of camaraderie among the all the tattooists and that, like, people were eager to learn from each other as well as, you know, kind of have some friendly rivalry as well. Yeah, and and she's not, you know, what's interesting about her, and we, we were talking a lot about this yesterday, so a lot of the really early material in the collection, which had belonged to her dad, um, from artists including uh, George Burchett, Joseph Hartley, um, Albert Gordon, and others, these really kind of beautiful hand-painted watercolour sheets by excellent, excellent artists. Um, from a time when tattooing, you know, in the era before re- mechanical reproduction, in the era before flash, really, when tattooers were hand-painting design sheets, um, was very beautiful and elaborate. By the time Jesse's career is really kicking off in the post-war period, like that kind of high-end tattooing, big-scale stuff, back pieces, etc., was much rarer. And the bread-and-butter work for a tattooer, particularly a tattooer in a port town, was quick. As many tattoos as you can do in a day, right? You've got queues in the morning. You've got your, your sailors are maybe only there for a day or a couple of days of leave. You want to get as many people tattooed as quickly as possible. And so Jessie's work... She's very rarely doing, although there are some pictures in uh, in in her um, in her archive of larger scale work. Um, there's a beautiful photo which isn't in the collection, but which survives um, of her tattooing a guy in her like in in the 1950s of her wearing stockings and suspenders and a bullet bra, tattooing like basically bra and pants on a guy on a <laughs> on a sofa. Um, but it's most great. of her it's kind a great of picture. yeah, isn't it? Right. But most of her bread and butter work is quick stuff. And she made a reputation as a as she proclaimed actually on her business cards. And as you can see, if you look at if you go uh, put into YouTube, I'm sure we'll put a link in the show notes, woman tattooist order shot. And there's a little Pathé newsreel from the early 1950s of her tattooing young army women and um, just basically bashing out swallows like with no stencils, freehand, just bash, bash, bash. She's not the greatest like artist in the world in terms of penmanship, etc. But uh, she wouldn't have claimed to either. What what does come across in her drawing and the tattoos based on it, and even actually when looking at like the production sheets that she was using and adapting and coloring in, so she was buying commercial flash or acquiring commercial flash from places like Sporting and Rogers, from Chicago Tattoo Supply House, um, clearly trading flash with. Uh, people that she knew. What comes across is this real sense of like humor, energy, um, joy. Like all of her stuff has a twinkle in the eye, and the way she draws women in her flash is just astonishing. Especially when compared to the way that um, other male artists of the period <laughs> are drawing women. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, again, yeah. like um, I, 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 this was the first time for you seeing a lot of this stuff close up. What was your sense of of the of the flash of the designs of the drawings. Yeah, like it it kind of it fit in with that continuity of, you know, British flash at the time in terms of like the iconography, but you know that point of that you made about how she drew pinups like quite often 
particularly with this selection that uh, I saw first. It's like, it's never really like scantily clad women. A lot of the time it is like women in uniform or women in like very powerful stances and it's not suggestive at all. It is like kind of empowering, but it is, you know, every single one of the designs apart from some of the larger pieces that I saw, it's like she, I could fully see her doing it in like 20 minutes just on someone's leg that's been like yeah. standing outside for the past 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, but like you do, I mean, you get there's, some... There's quite, there is quite a lot of like, you know, nudie pinups, but that, but even there, even those feel less objectified than, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe a kind of Sailor Jerry pinup that we're very familiar with, those things that are much more um, passive Lurid. in the way that they're drawn. Yeah. Most of her, most of her women that she draws um, feel very active, right? Mm-hmm. And also, like even in terms of like the compositions of her drawings, like the more like nude pinups and everything, the bodies seem more realistic as well. It's not that like very stereotypical, like Sailor Jerry, like pinup body. It's like they look like real women. Yeah, they do. All of her, all of her, um, all of, I, I pointed this out to one of the curators yesterday. All of her women look like more or less like real, actually, you know, like drawings of real human mm-hmm. beings rather than these completely idealized, you know, sex fantasies, although they're very sexy um, in many cases. <laughs> yeah. But and it's one thing I want to talk about as well is like her as a person, because like so much of the, ephemera as well as like signs from her shop where you can kind of see you know she didn't like people swearing in the shop she didn't tattoo drunk people and um, she didn't really like tattooing women that much or like young men and she didn't do hands yeah well she's part of this you know she's part of this very um conventional and quite conservative tattoo community at the time like bear in mind in the 1950s Tattooing in Britain, but also this applies to the US and elsewhere as well. But it's really at its kind of lowest ebb in a way, right? Tattooing had never been mm. completely mainstream. It had never been completely accepted. Um, in in doing some more research this morning to try and figure out, uh, you know, how tattooing was perceived in Wales when she was starting out, I found an advert for a tattooer in Swansea um, called uh, Professor Thomas whose advert said the curious but fashionable art of tattooing around about <laughs> 1904, right? Which I think is a good way of putting it. So at the end of the 19th century, first decade of the 20th century up to World War One, tattooing is like, it's fashionable, but it's mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. Um, the real stigma against it, the real association with the working class and with savagery and barbarianism like had been creeping up you know we've talked about it on the podcast before and you can read more about it and other stuff that i've written but this idea that we have now actually that my parents certainly have as boomers growing up in the period that jesse was working about what tattooing is who gets it and why is a really post post-war phenomenon in lots of ways so the reason for that is a few reasons one is that uh, tattooing becomes quite associated with stigma due to the uh, horrific stories of concentration camp tattooing um, uh, Jewish uh, people being forcibly tattooed uh, at places like Auschwitz. Um, that sort of starts to give tattooing a bit of a bad vibe. Um, also, fashions are changing. So the upper classes had sort of lost interest really by the 1910s anyway. Um, 
But in gen- in tattooing, but in general, t- you know, fashions in the 1940s and 50s, it's when modernism happens. So all of that chintzy stuff, all of that Victorian and Art Deco stuff is is going away. And we've all of a sudden, in everything from furniture to cars to wallpaper to fashion, we've got modernism, monochrome, you know, absence of pattern. Um, so tattooing just doesn't fit into that, really. And then the third thing is that lots of people were tattooed during the Second World War, but the tattoos that were visible in the 1950s were not those on the officer classes who were working post-war in banks or in um, insurance companies or serving in the Houses of Parliament. They were on people who were digging the roads. Who's, so if you saw a tattoo, it would, it would be on someone who was rolling their sleeves up at work, really cementing this idea that tattooing was something a bit de classe. So tattooing's pretty kind of in the doldrums at this point. And for someone like Jesse, that's just even harder, right? And and one of the things that um, Les Skews and the Bristol Tattoo Club really wanted to do in, in the UK was ensure that tattooing could claim some respectability in the same way that people like Sutherland MacDonald and Tom Riley had done in previous decades, right? By um, By really advocating for cleanliness, advocating for not tattooing children or that it wasn't illegal to tattoo people under the age of 18 for <laughs> his career um for not tattooing not tattooing on hands um and yeah in, in certainly at some point in jesse's career as you said one of her shop sides even says i don't tattoo women which mm. is interesting right um but i think it's also clearly those shops would have been rambunctious you know there's a lot of booze mm. around um some of her shop signs have Pop down the pub, written on the back of them, onto the Golden Bell in Portsmouth, for example. Um, and when you see those poems that she has up about, for example, you know, if you're one over the eight, you're too late, or um, uh, uh, keep those, um, watch those dirty jokes, you filthy blokes. Yeah. Um, you get a sense of a woman who is really establishing the fact that she is in charge of mm-hmm. this place. Right, so she would have been in the in the fifties. You know, she's she's in her fifties at that point. As she was born in nineteen oh four, so she's a fifty year old woman. Lots of her, lots of her um, customers are going to be 18, 19, 20 year olds. She's in charge, right? And she's been yeah, tired a yeah, long yeah. time. And you get a real sense that her there's loads of jokes and puns in her flash. Like you know, there's a great mm. drawing of a ice cream cone with a screaming mouth with ice cream written underneath it. Like (laughs) all of like some, there's real fun and energy, but she's also like, you know, she's serious about tattooing and about presenting it in a way that is, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that is like, you know, it is, is legit in a way. And it's funny because that is very much reflected in say like the, the photographs we saw of her, particularly when she's, you know, all dressed up, you know, she comes across as a, Someone who is intensely proud both of herself and of her work in, you know, both the work that she puts on the skin and how she maintains her work environment, you know, sitting on that trunk so no one can steal her secrets, making sure you can't say any four letter words. And, you know, if you're if you're one over the eighth, you're too late. That's right. And and you see on some of her some of her flashbooks, she's written, you know, don't steal my designs and um in in amongst her collection, there's um, the beginnings of an autobiography, just a couple of pages that she started writing, and a couple of poems um, about her life. One of which is called um, "Jessie the Squint-Eyed Witch" to the tune of 
Popeye the Sailor Man, um, which basically says that she's like sticking like hell to her pitch. You know, they call me this, they call me that, they call me bitch, and they call me a cat. You know, all of this stuff. So, okay, look, I'm not going to sing this to the tune. Um, unless you want to, it's pretty too complicated for you to edit in the Popeye theme behind, but um, imagine yourself. I'm Squint Eye the Tattoo Witch. All the scratch artists call me a bitch. For I cut all their throats till they burned all their boats. I'm Squint Eye the Tattoo Witch. Right, you can imagine this to that tune. I'm a squint. I'm squint eye the tattoo witch. They want to bump off this short ass old bitch. They know they can't beat me, so they're all trying to lose me. This dirty old lousy old throat cutting witch. They tattoo their eyeballs. They tattoo their ear holes. But a real artist to this, I say, bumholes. <laughs> yeah, I'm squint eye the tattooed witch. They try hard at p- pinching my pitch. So gristle just like treacle or a small periwinkle. The flotsam and jetsam, the loafal and winsome, the good and the bad, the sane and the mad. May the strangers of noises, unseen but with voices, they whisper their muse of abuse and shout, and it's just like out. I'm squint eye the tattoo witch, I'm sticking like hell to my pitch. For when I need another, I'll stick to another. For never, ever, there'll be quite another old witch with a needle. The squint eyed tattooed witch. So she's clearly, she's clearly she's aware she's had to fight. She also, she also wrote... Um, um, an amazing poem called I haven't got it up actually but a, a poem called Tattooing in the Atomic Age where she talks about how tattooing has changed a lot in the, her career over the course of her career but how she's still she calls it the old skin digging game um, when I when I did the exhibition uh, we did a little version of it at my university gallery um, and we, I called it skin digging because I think that's a good it's a good uh, a good, eye, good good sense of exactly you know exactly again her attitude to all this the old skin digging game but yeah, in amongst that, as I said, you've got this real interesting balance of um, of a sense that she had to kind of fight and earn her earn respect. Um, th- other women who worked with her couldn't didn't enjoy it and, and retired. And, and despite the best efforts of people that I I know who've tried to speak to some of those women, um, they've not wanted to talk about it. The amazing. Uh, Terry, who we mentioned earlier on, also did some work to to, to make sure the story of another female tattooist from this period, Dot Shaw, got told because she'd basically completely been forgotten and overshadowed by the guy that she was working with um, in Blackpool. And again, after she left the industry, really didn't speak about it to anyone because it was so traumatizing. And so when you realize that as well, right, that not only was Jessie kind of the most prominent woman in the industry for decades, but also in Britain, but also that other women that were involved had such a hard time that mm. not only did they leave the industry prematurely, but also they never talked about it after yeah. they retired. You get a sense of just what an incredible and special, tough woman uh, Jessie was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, just, no, I, I think as we're kind of like coming towards the end of the story, I think something that I want to ask you is, as someone who, I mean, you're kind of a big part responsible for the fact that all this stuff has been preserved and that people will soon know so much about her. What does her story and her legacy mean to you? Well, like I said to you yesterday, man, like I, uh, I think, um, you know, on the one hand I did, didn't do much other than write a few letters and, you know, put some stuff that I thought was cool on display. But on the other hand, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I did. And I, I, and really it was Neil and Neil's, 
fortitude and 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 um love and understanding you know he wasn't a tattoo guy he inherited the collection when she died in 1992 basically cuz she was his favorite um favorite <laughs> of her of her of her uh nieces and nephews but he understood really that that this was an important story and he'd in some senses kept this stuff safe and together because he knew i guess someday someone would come looking for it and and as I said, I wasn't the first person to reach out to him, but I was the first to try and figure out the material story of this material. And um, yeah, I think it's the best thing I'm ever going to do in my career. You know, I've done a few other things I'm really proud of um, already. Like starting this podcast. Might, like starting this podcast, but you know, hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully, I'll have a I'll have a good few decades on me yet. But I think this collection now is basically unique in the world. Um, there are collections. Um, for example, and hopefully we're going to get Ole Whitman on um, from Hamburg. There's a collection in Hamburg of material that belonged to Christian Varlick. There's a big collection at um, a museum called Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. And there are obviously huge, important private collections as well. But being able to more or less ensure that this collection stayed together and was put into the hands, as you'll hear when we, if you listen to those interviews that we did with the curator and the conservator down in Wales who are looking after it, conserving it, going to put effort into making sure that it's stabilised and isn't kind of rotting away. Um, mm. We end up with a, a, the story of this amazing woman and this amazing family. But also, I think, you know, um, of, of a side of human life, you know, all these amazing women who survived in the terrible misogynistic cesspit of the 1950s in Britain um, something of their story I think comes through in Jesse as well right tattooing uh, gets to be the story of things beyond itself as we talk about all the time on this podcast tattooing is is not just the sort tattooing is not just the history of this obscure thing but it's something that from which we can learn about the history of, of everything else and I think you know the, the, the curators at the museum they they were really starting to reflect, as many museums are, about um, you know what museums have missed by only focusing on the stories of famous people and and rich people, um, and and the kind of objects that are missing from their collection and the things that that museums should have been preserving. You know, it shouldn't have really been down to these incredible incredible private collectors and family members. Um, to keep this stuff safe, um, uh, but yeah, like they've realised that they've they've missed a trick, and I I think actually the the team in Wales were brave, and it was the right time, and they although it's complicated and difficult, they really realised that this was going to be um, an important collection, not just because tattooing is cool and exciting, but also because you know this is a story of craft, it's a story of 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 the lives of her customers, men and women. Um, whose stories otherwise don't get told very well. It's a story of gender history. It's a story of class. It's a story of you know uh, internal migration in the UK. This family that moved from England to Wales f- about the kind of cultural imaginary you know of this period where everyone's obsessed with cowboys and sailors and the kind of romance which this clearly through her father she really fell in love with you know so. Yeah, I'm. I'm really proud that f- basically forever now, you know, as long as until this planet burns up in a fiery ball, 
there's going to be this collection um, for tattoo historians and other historians to uh, to look at and see and use. And I, I, yeah, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of it. And I hope, I don't know, like, as I said, I can't take too much credit other than being the conduit for it. But um, I, I'm glad that I've got myself to a position in my career that I was able to do that, you know, because I think as Fleur, the curator yesterday, described Jesse, like, she's iconic, really, not just as a tattoo artist, but as a, as a kind of figure of British cultural history. And it's exciting that over the years now, more people are going to get to know about her. Mm-hmm. And I just want to take, you know, a moment to thank you as well, because, you know, without you, I would have never seen something like that. I, I said it yesterday that so often as a tattoo enthusiast, you see all these pictures online and you see like old flash from certain eras and to see all this stuff actually in person to pick up, you know, her tattoo machine to, see all her work and personal ephemera it, it was an incredible experience that i probably will only ever get to experience once and i have to thank you for that yeah and 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 people will you know this is this is the beauty of it things that the museum are also because of because of um because of neil's instructions because of the way that curating is going because of the genuine love of how this collection are are, are you know dealing with everything they own um essentially it is going to be accessible they're going to preserve stuff and 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 keep it in a way that people are going to be able to look at it um and see it uh for decades to come so yeah it's really really um just really really exciting really i think i was well i was going to say i um i've i haven't managed to pull up i want to pull up one of the poems because i i think again it's maybe a good place to finish up um uh because it's a good illustration of um well, of this poetic side of her, but also of her attitudes to to everything else. So, um, I don't know. Would you would you indulge me to like, of course, read of course. read a bit one of her poems? So this is called "This Is My Life." I am a tattoo artist. As such, I won my fame, and I've certainly covered a lot of ground in the old skin digging game. I've tattooed here, I've tattooed there, I've tattooed nearly everywhere. They call me this, they call me that, they call me a vampire and a nasty cat. But a tattoo artist I'll always be. If it's good enough for others, it's good enough for me. That old skin digging gets my bread, so I'll go on digging till I'm dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yours truly, Jess. <laughs> Incredible. And she she retired from tattooing uh, in 1968, um, basically moved into her brother's um, house in Barry, back in Wales, um, and where she remained until she died in 1992. There are stories of her still tattooing friends and tattooing out of that house, actually, um, again, certainly for several years after she officially, quote, retired. So mm-hmm. she she kept her promise, man. She kept her promise to keep on digging until she's dead. There was an amazing um, filmmaker who recorded her just before she died. Uh, not much of the film's ever been made public. There was at some point a very brief clip of it online. Um, basically, her in her like mid to late eighties, very old, very elderly, still, um, you know, having hard time time trying to remember everything um, that the guy's asking her. But she's still got this twinkle in her eye. She's still laughing about people yeah. that passed out because she tattooed their necks and, um, you know, all the things that she'd seen and done. And I think, like I've mentioned this podcast a lot of times, you know, these these people that uh, who survive in and around the tattooing tattooing industry for decades particularly in her case as a woman, um, there's something there that's really about 
you know, about love, about about a kind of particular kind of romantic joy that comes from from being involved in the industry. Um, I mean, the last uh, there's a great poem here um, at the end of her life, uh, or actually not the end of her life, end of her career, called "Age of It's called an Age of Knowledge," and she says in this poem, this would have been yeah around about 1965, like close to her retirement. Sixty summers and sixty winters I've seen. And now I wonder where they've gone and where I've been. For suddenly I feel somehow I've jumped the bloody lot. In spite of all the incident, what the hell have I got? 60 summers and 60 winters and memory lane to wander down and live the dreams all over again and tear my hair and rant about the potty things I've done and wonder about the night. Uh, I wonder about that, what might have been if I hadn't bought that gun. <laughs> what a pit. She sh- As I said, she shot her husband. <laughs> what a pity for somehow I think that was my lot. You know, it, it's it's such a beautiful perspective. Both those poems on her life and her career and how she thought about it, and yeah, she just seemed like a an incredible woman. I know we talked about it yesterday. You asked me like, did did you think that uh, I would have got on with Jesse? And I think uh, we both said that she would tell us to swear less. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. So anyone that's listening, look, as I said, the National Museum of Wales is digitizing the collection. They're nearly done with the digitizing. It's going to be up um, on display uh, on their website eventually, um, I think within the next few months. Um, If there are things that listeners can get involved with, um, we will, of course, mention it on the podcast. Keep listening. Uh, At some point again soon, there will be the opportunity to go down and have a look um, at the material yourself. Uh, some of it would no doubt be on display. There's also, for those of you that are interested in more of the kind of story of her sister and the circus side, um, there's also material of the circus side of the family in other collections, including the National Fairground Archive up in up in um, Sheffield. Remarkable family, remarkable people, and I'm just really proud, yeah, to be able to have introduced uh, her to people listening that haven't heard of her before, I suppose. And if you want to see more of Jessie, um, definitely check out our Instagram, I'll be posting some pictures that I took, some material that Matt has about Jessie from her life, her work. Um, the link will be down below. Just check it out. Um, once again, you know, thanks for this will be a Patreon episode until we unlock it in the future. But thank you very much for supporting the show. It's your support helps us, you know, do trips like that to go see collections like this one of Jessie. And you know, really appreciate it. And thank you very much for, you know, supporting the show and for listening and you know if you if this is out on the free feed and you're listening to it in the future you know consider maybe supporting us so you can get bonus episodes every month where we talk about stuff like this uh, for as little as five quid a month and you can get matt's book at one of the higher tiers but uh thank you very much for listening it's goodbye from me and goodbye from goodbye. matt yeah goodbye <laughs>